0: Hi, this is Wayne Radazzo of the WCBS Mets Radio Network, and you're listening to Baseball and BBQ.
1: The Mets Music's podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. Alright, guys, take it away.
2: Welcome to Episode Number 96 of baseball and barbecue i'm here with my incredible but uh, about to be proven wrong co-host jeff cohen
3: okay and i'm here I'm with, with my co-host who's about to be proven wrong lenny rebent
2: hello there and let's get right into it all right we've got a lot going on let's just tell you this this episode we have part two with chef george Georgiadis. If, uh, if you thought part one was good, I think we saved the best for last. Jeff, I listened to part two, and I was like, there's a lot going on there. Uh-huh. He's got some great stories. He's got a story about how he was stolen from and all this. All right. And then
0: we have we Andrew
3: Marinus, yes. who wrote a great book, story of, of Glenn Burke.
2: Yeah, it is actually called Singled Out. Singled the Out. true story of Glenn Burke. I think, you know what? I don't even want to say anything about it. I think you just have to listen to it. It's it's an emotional story. Yes. I think you guys, when you hear it, you're going to understand what we're talking about and you're going to understand uh, why it, it just, it, it brings out a lot of emotions. But Jeff. Let's get to it. Let's get right to it. Yes. I want to start this off. You and I having... What, what I thought was actually not going to be an argument, I was very surprised, um, but the other night, I think it was it was either uh, last night or a couple of nights ago, it doesn't matter because some people listen to this podcast later, whenever, but the- Ken Brian Hayes. Yes, thank he you. hit a home run. From, from the Pittsburgh Pirates, from the Pittsburgh yes. Pirates,
3: he hit a home run,
2: a ball that went over the fence, yes, and it he did. was called out. Yes, yes they review now the funny thing is they went to instant replay to review the home run to see if it was a foul ball or a home run and it was shown to be a home run in the instant replay and yet he was called out yes and the reason he was called out is he didn't touch first base now hold on correct hold on we are honored okay let's go back and and say we are honored To welcome with us tonight, Gary Mack. And wait, you know what? We didn't do that justice. Gary Mack! Gary Mack is going to be the impartial judge for this argument. Gary, can you please? Here comes the judge. Here comes the judge. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, I ain't Aaron, but (laughs) nice to be with you
2: guys. Thank you, Gary. We, we're, we're so glad that you are joining us. I'll be even more glad when you agree with me. You take my side. <laughs> but here's how it goes. So they do the instant replay. They call him out. Why did they call him out? Because he didn't touch first base when he was running the bases. Right. Okay. And I say that's stupid was called a home run. It went over the fence, and it should be a home run. And, Jeff, give me give me your argument. He he missed the base. He's got to touch all the bases. That's the name of the game.
3: The word baseball, base is in the name of the, the sport, baseball. So, okay. and it, By the way, this is not the first time it's happened a home run was taken back. I've never seen it before in my 50-plus years on this planet, but twice in one year a, a home run that went over the fence is not called a home run because – Uh, one of Cabrian Hayes missing a base, and in the other game, it was the Dodgers who, I think it was Justin Turner passed Cody Bellinger on the base path or or whatever, but that was uh, ruled not a home run, even though it went over the fence. But,
2: okay, all right, hold on, hold on. I would not have an issue with it being called not a home run. However, okay, because it's the rule, he has to touch all the bases. It also was a rule that an intentional walk, you needed to throw all the pitches. I, I they agree changed with that. that, right? They changed that though. They made it now. If you call an intentional walk, it's automatic. They don't go through the pitches. That's right. It saves okay. so much time. It saves so much time. I, in the that, game. That's, I, that, I understand that. That's. We can argue that another time, but. Why is it that that rule's okay to be changed? And yet, this rule, the guiding touch first base, come on, it's a home run. The ball went over the wall. Yeah, that's then, a you home know what?
3: Then, then let him go over the okay. wall and just turn around, and go back
2: to the uh, dugout. Why touch any bases? What's the point you of touching what? any bases? If, if baseball wants to speed up the game, that's what they'll end up doing. No more home run trots. They'll just say, ball goes over the wall. Go to back to the dugout. You got a home run. The point is that I think it's a stupid rule. And the guy hits a home run over the wall. It went over the wall. It was a home run. So on a technicality, we're gonna say, oh, it wasn't a home run. Well,
3: the runners have to touch the bases, whether it's a home run or a single. You gotta touch the
2: base. He didn't touch the base. They need to change that. They need to change that. Let's change change. everything. Why don't we just they make this change a, other rules? Why don't we just make this a video game? But Jeff, they changed. They put a runner at second in extra innings. I they know changed that intentional walk. They changed, I agree, I agree mean, with it. Okay, they change how many times you can. Uh, the manager can. Uh, the again. Can I don't break. agree with it. Now, all right. You gave your argument, which was terrible. It was like tissue paper. I could punch tons of holes in it. Okay, Gary. Gary Mac. What say you? You call him the judge.
1: He's out. Ah. He's out. He missed first base. That's the current rule. It's a stupid rule. They need to change it. But it happened a couple of nights after that. In a double-A game, this is even worse. Guy hit the second home run. He's leading double-A in home runs. Bobby Witt Jr. I forget what team he plays for. He's in a double-A team. Hit the second home run way the heck out of the ballpark. Comes around. He does this fancy, stupid trademark, as they say, skip across home plate. He missed home plate. They <laughs> called him out. Next, next pitch, they, they called him out. They stepped on home plate. He was out. And so was uh, the pirate guy. He was out as well because the rule is touch them all. Got to touch the bases if you don't touch them you're out should they change it yeah they can change it but as it stands right now i gotta go with Jeff's argument he didn't touch all the bases he's
2: out but you do agree it's a stupid rule
1: <laughs> well but then without it you have no more home run trots where's the joy oh, okay. it, you know then essentially it's a home run derby yeah. guy here's a home run he sits back down where's the fun of that that's right
3: where's where's
1: the fun of a bottom of the ninth home run the seventh game of the world series going out and the guy
2: then he doesn't run around the bases anymore i'm not saying he shouldn't run around the bases i'm just saying you can't because he didn't touch first base come on that's ridiculous
1: you have to touch all the bases
2: Yes, well, you, you have know to. what
1: I mean, it's the same thing. Look at what happened with Robin Ventura losing the Grand Slam.
3: Yeah, there you go. That's a good he
1: example. Didn't touch all the bases. Oh, that's a yes. great
2: example. They're changing rules left and right. That's a well, rule yes, that they, they are. Change.
1: They choose. No, you're right. That if they choose to, to change it, they can change it. But as of now, and we're basing this on on what happened this week, he was out. Because the rule that rule has not been changed. And whether or not some of the rules they change will go back, they, they may not keep this uh, doubleheader, seven-inning thing. I have more of an argument with that, with the bomb gone and no-hitter. To me, that was a no-hitter because they changed the rule about the doubleheaders, but then they're using an old rule to say that it wasn't a no-hitter because a no-hitter has to be nine innings when it should be a complete game is a no hitter, he couldn't mm-hmm. pitch two more innings because there was the, the um there was no one player. there was no other team to throw to.
4: Excellent point. So
1: if he would have went out there with his catcher and threw two more innings just playing catch, would they count that as a nine inning? Of course not. So why should he get deprived of a no hitter, and yet they recognize it as a complete game? Well, how could it be a complete game if it's not a no hitter? There's a lot of stupid rules out there. But I mean, if you're going on a question of pure rules right now, those guys were out. They missed. They they did not touch the base and. If they want to change it, yeah, you can change it. But I, I think sometimes let's – you know what? It's almost like we don't – it's a personal responsibility. So how much personal responsibility do you want to take out of the game? I mean, if a guy hits it out and he sits down, there's no there's no personal responsibility to touch all of the bases. And then are you watching
4: TV?
2: Almost, do I hear yeah, a TV?
1: Geez, yeah,
2: and, and Michelle's on the phone. Oh, I'm in man, get out. Know, Boy. <laughs>
1: I can go in another room.
2: No, you know, know what, Gary? Say, no, actually, Gary, we greatly appreciate you coming on, but you know what? You're out. Oh, and <laughs> you, you didn't touch the space.
3: <laughs> I
4: didn't agree uh, with hurry. a freak. Get rid of me. <laughs> Gary,
2: we'll we appreciate fine. it, Gary. Just tell us, give us a quick. how can people find you for more on your baseball analysis, your, which is excellent, everyone. He really. Well, he thank knows. you.
1: You can find me at Metsmusings.com. It's my weekly podcast, uh, Metz Musings. And I also do a, another uh, a podcast called Baseball Talk Radio Show, with my good friend Rich Baxter. And that you can find at anchored.fm/slash baseball talk radio show and Metsmusic.com and, and YouTube on Mets Music's Mac. You can find the video version of uh, Mets Music. So if you're a Mets fan, go check it out. If you're a baseball fan, check it out. And if you're a baseball fan, check out the Baseball Talk Radio Show. Where we talk about old things major leagues and minor leagues too sometimes we get things in there so check it out
2: Gary we appreciate it you, you came on last minute with us you put your robe on and you know the the appellate court and so we thank you very much thanks
1: Gary you're very welcome anytime guys
2: all right take Bye. care all right Jeff so whatever okay. I, I I understand a rule's a rule it's a stupid rule Damn but whatever but it's fun you know what yes. there is one thing it is fun to it's not life and death exactly and it's, it's,
3: it's a fun uh, debate you know it wasn't exactly. an argument it was a, a it debate. was a debate and, and it was baseball fun. debates you know what just that it's fun it's not you Agreed. know it's not life and death it's baseball.
2: absolutely absolutely and we thank and if,
3: for joining us that was a, you, and it
2: really was a last minute thing. absolutely absolutely <laughs> we were here we said you know what we're going to have this little debate, and let's have a an impartial judge. Yeah. Although I don't know, he was holding up a fifty dollar bill. Did you somehow <laughs> sneak that to him? I I don't know, but I uh, I've demoed it. <laughs> anyway, we should go into our first guest, excellent, yes. George Giardis. But you know what, Jeff? We'll talk about it a little when he, when it's done. We'll yes. we'll take it from there.
3: And we pick up George Giardis when we ask, did he have to readjust things due to the p- pandemic? So.
2: Listen to part two of George Georgiatis. Did you have to readjust things to due to the oh, pandemic?
5: Yeah, man. Our, our city location, you know, it it because that area by the hospital and all the kids and the hospitals were getting all the food, you know, donated to them. So that's one of our main. That was one of our main revenue streams, you know.
4: Mm-hmm. And
5: then we were big in catering in the city, like all big companies, you know, like Time Warner and you know, Juicy Couture and uh, Estee Lauder used to order from us. And I mean, there's a hundred, a ton of those guys that would order from us, you know, and they just dropped, you know, overnight, you know, gone, you know, New York City. And that was probably our most devastatedly hit store. You know what I mean? The other ones, Paramus and Montvale in Jersey were good-ish. You know what I mean? They were down 30%, 40%, you know, sometimes, you know what I mean? In the high, you know, which is, you know, now that it was like the new normal, it's acceptable. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's right. it. You know, speak to my friends who are in the restaurant business. I know a, a group called uh, Ed Darty. You know, he has a group of like 150 restaurants, the Darty group. And, you know, he was like, George, you should be happy <laughs> we're still surviving, you know. So it was good, you know, it's a good lesson. He lean, you know, we like, right. you know, You know, we took care of our staff, like, you know, of course, when the government helped, we gave them bonuses and structured whoever stayed and followed the regulations, you know, it was difficult working with the mass and all these new, you know, things that we had to do. So we had to take care of them during that time. Now you, what have are you Eon. say that? interrupt you no, no, I not know you, you know what I mean the, it's not glum you
2: know <laughs> you are the guest and and so I when you talk I try to be quiet but I want to ask you about
5: interrupt you have, me don't worry about it say, <laughs> time is money you know
2: <laughs> you have a pizza place in that I want to talk about you weren't content to just stop with eons
5: you oh, have a pizza man, place I want
2: to talk about
5: that that's crazy yeah it was just um, as you notice, I'm an A-type personality. You know what I mean? And I like somewhat challenges and right. times, you know. I think, you know, I say, Oh, I want to do this and I want to be wealthy and I don't want to have to worry about anything. But I think in essence I love the drama, maybe the Greek, you know, the tragedy. <laughs> we're happiest when we're miserable. <laughs> I think we have it in all cultures, right? <laughs>
2: Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> misery loves company. So <laughs> apparently, yes. But you know, S- was, what is it? Sq Pizza Company in in Mawa, New Jersey, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah,
5: yeah. It was um. You know what? It was kind of dumb luck that we started it. You know what I mean? It was a friend of mine owns the plaza, uh, Larry Liebowitz, and he always wanted to put an Eons there. And I was like, no way, it's the worst location. And I talked to my partners about it. They're like, no way, that's not a good spot. So. I never went to it, you know what I mean? It was an old firehouse sub. And then during the pandemic, he goes to me, George, let's me and you do it together. You know what I mean? I was like, you out of your mind, Larry. They're crazy, there's a pandemic going on. We're not going to do nothing. He's like, what would you put in there? I was like, you know what? I really like this Roman style pizza because I remember having it in Rome. You know what I mean? And then I was in the city and there was another place, uh, PQR, that had it uptown in the 70s or 50s 2nd Avenue. I forget the exact address. And it brought back those memories, you know, and I'm like, you know what? It's the number one seller right now. You see, it's all over the news where we were watching it because we we're sitting home for three months, you know what I mean? Scared to go out and doing a lot of research on it. And I just, I love the product. I love that the flower was from Italy, no chemicals, unbleached, you know, a lot of the pizzerias now, I don't want to downgrade them because they're just trying to do their best to survive, but the flowers have chemicals in it, you know, it has browning agents and stuff to stop it from you know getting moldy you know and make it last longer and this flour just tastes delicious man i was just i'm impressed i make it and i'm still impressed when i eat it <laughs> i'm not even just saying it. i'm like damn this is good pizza and you're gonna laugh i mean and it was just helping a friend and us and you know a little side project because you know, I, I never wanted to distract me from eons, you know, eons is like our, our focus, you know what I mean? Our 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 baby, you know, that was our struggle, my wife and I, you know, it was being sued in the first one and finding the right partners like we, you know, finally found, you know what I mean? So, and it was like a distraction and a time that I needed it, you know, to forget about what was going on, you know? What did you get sued for? Oh, when I was in the first eons, I partnered with this guy, an old friend of mine, which I should have known better. He didn't understand what was going on. And, you know, he just sued me to be mean. You know what I mean? He wanted to shut the restaurant down, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was a whole drama. He was, he took money from the company and it was at the end of the day, you know, I was always been an honest guy, everything by the book. I can tell you a funny story about the whole thing, but forget about it. It'll take take forever. No,
2: no, no, no. You brought it up. You tell the funny story. We need funny.
5: The lawyer, the lawyer, you're going to laugh, man. One night, um, uh, there was money in the safe, right? There was money in the safe. I put it away, and I woke up in the morning. I come in, and the money was gone. You know what I mean? I'm like, holy, you know, what happened to the money? I was stressed, you know. I left a high-paying job. To go open up this Eons and like my world was crumbling because it was in like the worst location, you know. I'm this high end chef, you know, who's spoiled, who got everything. You know, I opened up a place and people liked it. To open up Eons on you know on the armpit of the world, I call it Murray Hill on Second Avenue, <laughs> <laughs> across the street from where I got married with my wife at the Armenian Church, man. <laughs> it was like hilarious, like a you know crazy. Of course, from the Lincoln Tunnel, you know. Yeah. you know what we build the business you know what i mean my wife was a very important part of it you know what i mean building the business the catering and all that other stuff and but in the beginning it was rough because you know we took loans out i thought i was trying to be a nice guy then he wouldn't put the money back you know what i mean so one night i go into the safe the next morning the money was missing and i thought i left a safe open the bug guy took it and you know i called the police in. a friend of mine was with me that was helping me he was a little funny guy and we couldn't find out who took it. We looked at the cameras and I'm like, nah, I'm going to stay looking at the cameras. Sure enough, at like 2.30 in the morning, who we never would think would be my partner who owns a huge construction company. I don't want to say the name, you know, like not huge, but, you know, a decent size, supposedly mm-hmm. construction company would come in and take $2,000. You know what I mean? Sure enough, the lights go on and it was him. He took the money, you know what I mean? To mess with me. And my partner typed on the computer screen in case he went to the chef again, not my partner, my friend, typed on the uh, FU and his name and put it in the safe. But he left it on the computer screen and his wife used to like, you know, sign on to look at QuickBooks and stuff. And the first thing she saw was FU and his name.
2: That is a funny story. <laughs>
5: the guy was so pissed. And they're showing it when we were suing us. You know, he was trying to sue us to shut down. But we were everybody knew we were right. When I was in the the, the courtroom or the, the mediation, they all knew who I was. It was like, I'm, I'm Mr. Integrity. I try to be. You know what I mean? That's how mm-hmm. you grow up in our generation. You know, your word is your word. Mm-hmm. Everything's an open book. The lawyers were laughing. They're like, oh, he just hates you, George. I, we know you're right. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> he just wants you to pay money in lawyers. But I'm like, oh, my God, I wasn't used to that. Then you get a you know, $70,000 lawyer bill at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, what, what the hell is that about?
2: It means we all should have become lawyers. Yes. Yeah.
5: <laughs> that and the funny part, before we started fighting, I sat down and told him what I thought the right thing was to do. And that's what ended up happening. We should have been lawyers. You're right. What the hell am I thinking? Man? <laughs>
3: you know, you know what? I'm very impressed with George. Is you, you said you were trained as a French chef, so you you, been, you did that. You open up Greek restaurants, and now you're branching into a, a, Italian with, with, with the pizzas. I mean, that's very impressive. The whole range of of culinary gotta, arts gotta, that you I have.
5: I gotta throw props out there. You know that 24 and me thing? That DNA. Yeah. I did my DNA. And I swear to God, my nose, everything, I love, I hang out with Jewish people my whole life. I swear to God, I thought I was Jewish, man. I was like praying that I was Jewish somewhere, you know. My people, I'm back to the homeland, you know. All my friends are, you know, pretty much Jewish. And I'm 30% Italian, man. I was heartbroken, you know what I mean? (laughs) You don't know, man. I was like, oh. I was like, what's the matter? I said, italian then <laughs> and 70 percent greek you know what i mean so there's uh-huh. a whole bunch of other you know stuff in there so i maybe it's in my blood you know and i really enjoy was making the dough and learning how to make it in the beginning you know what i mean it was a fun process but now they're good you know they're okay i gotta focus on eons we're getting out of the pandemic now you know what i mean and, but Unless so you know
3: uh, well, maybe maybe you can open up a Jewish deli. One of these
5: Yeah, simple concept. All we're doing, all they're doing is pizza and a couple of cool sandwiches mm-hmm. and some salads. That's it. There's no, you know, people come in, ask me for a chicken parmesan, I kick them out, man. No chicken for you. Out.
2: <laughs> Another thing that, that's great to grill, right? Is eggplant.
5: Oh, it's we're always yeah. thinking I means
2: mean, to grill. But know, vegetables, eggplant.
5: You mentioned that eggplant dip that you had that was spicy back at uh, the day. But the way we do it in Greece is we score them and grill them on the grill until they're nice and brown and soft. And then we cool them down, cover them and cool them down and peel them that way. And that's where you get that smokiness from the eggplant. Is it that nice charred flavor? You really brown them up, you know, get that flavor on there, that smoky, you know, barbecue. That's the best.
2: Yeah. You know, it's so funny because. I had a bunch of questions for you. And it's funny because Jared I have to he wanted us to thank someone here who helped us come up with some questions. So I'm gonna do that right now. And I'll tell you what's what's funny is that a lot of what you're saying, I'm like looking at these questions, which I, want I also to wanted to ask you. He's an awesome man. I wanna thank
5: him too, man. He's yes.
2: a great guy. Yeah. Yes, he is an awesome man. And then he wanted to thank Maria Valiatis. He says that she happens to be a great chef and real estate agent. And then he wants to give her a plug. So he says, if you're looking to buy a home in Westchester, Long Island, or New York City, please email Maria Valides at MariaValides at gmail.com. So I told him that I would do that. And I'm sure she is a wonderful woman. She came up with some fantastic questions, which you are answering without us asking. So what? I don't know how you're doing it. <laughs> hey, Greek, you know, a symbiotic. Tell her,
5: you know, I hope I make it through all this. I want to buy a brownstone in New York City. Is that possible? <laughs>
2: <then>? <laughs> I'm sure she. I've, I've never met her, but I, I can almost guarantee she'd like to sell you one.
5: I grew up in the projects <laughs> on 26th and 10th Avenue. You know what I mean? The
2: good old days back there, Chelsea. So, what do you like for barbecue? Is there a particular cooker that you like to use, or does it matter? You know what?
5: I have a couple, believe it or not, even in my house, man. You know, I I mean, um I got into smoking smoking a while ago. And I bought this thing that's similar to a green egg, you know what I mean? That smoker thing, the beautiful sort called the vision one. And okay. I fell in love with this grill. That and my standard quick Weber, the old faithful. You know I love that, but I love that ceramic barbecue thing because I could put charcoal in it, I could put wood in it so it simulates that kind of stuff. And, you know, the rotisserie, I have the attachment also on my Weber. which I love roasting the little chickens and stuff like that. Now, if I was looking at the picture, I, if I could find out, you know, back in the day, we used to rent these spits for the lamps. And we used to buy them where they put the lamb on the spit and roast it whole
2: for Easter. This ceramic one, it's like a Kamado cooker, like the green yeah, egg?
5: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're beautiful, okay. man. It holds the heat perfect. You know, I think it's good, a good product, you know. It's expensive for uh, what it is. I wouldn't, right. you know, I bought one on sale. Like I was driving past Fortune off, you know, sitting there, and I was like, <laughs> I was looking one of those who was half off. I was like, what is it?
2: <laughs> but they're well made. Yeah, yeah, they're well made.
5: Yeah, they last. Yeah, I yeah. have it. I mean, uh, I think it's almost going on 10 years or not, you know, close to it, like eight for sure. Still going strong.
2: Them and Weber. Weber yeah. works. So.
5: Yeah. Oh, I was going to ask you, how's your desserts? You know, I'm. Uh, I like dessert a lot. I that's. I love eating it, and you know, I make all a lot of the Greek desserts. I mean, I I like like comfort stuff. Like yesterday, believe it or not, I made rice pudding, and I think it was one of the better rice puddings I finally got down because you normally we don't make it in high-end restaurants, right? P- rice pudding, because it's like a peasant thing. Your mother makes it, that kind of stuff. And normally we make the baklavas and the karidopita's and all those those labor-intensive stuff. And the Greek yogurt with honey. And cherries on it. You know, that's a popular one. You know, are what are dishes. your favorite Greek desserts? What do you guys like?
2: You know, it's funny. My my wife loves baklava. She, I'm sure she would love the, the Greek yogurt with the honey. And she loves rice pudding. She's the big Greek dessert eater. Nice. Here, I, I got to ask you this. Cheeses. Apparently, there are cheeses. Uh, one is called halloumi cheese. Yep,
5: yep. Okay. Yep.
2: This, I I gotta give this woman credit because I didn't know about this. She
5: knows her Um, (laughs) spin
2: exactly. Yeah,
5: yeah, it was.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This cheese apparently gets soft but does not melt, gets nice grill marks. Yeah, man, I used to call it the plastic cheese, man. It used to kill me out, (laughs) but no, I don't want to
5: give it a bad name. I love it. It's a great cheese. It's a Cyprian cheese from Cyprus, and it's a really good product, and it's really durable like you could coat it in flour and throw it in the fryer later and it makes these crispy outside and soft in the middle and if you olive oil this cheese with a little olive oil uh salt pepper and put it on the grill it's delicious man you grill it you put it on a salad you know because it and then it's it's stringy when you're done with it you have like the beautiful brown grill marks on it the smoky flavor but yet it's like you said it's soft in the middle. It's stretchy. She's right. It's a very popular Cyprian cheese. You know, the Greeks love it. And a lot of times we pair like that grilled halloumi with an eggplant, with a watermelon, with a watermelon, a drizzle of honey, fresh mint. So it's a nice, refreshing pseudo dessert, Greek dessert, which is kind of cool. We also do it with feta cheese
2: and watermelon. It's popular. Uh, And this is all at eons. You know No. Some of it's just at your home. Okay. And some of it's just at your house.
5: <laughs> yes, we do have like the yogurt. We have like the yogurt and the baklava and that mm-hmm. stuff. Right. Kandaifi, which is also a Greek dessert. I mean, it has its origins from Turkey, but it's a, a cream-filled dessert, basically, with a shredded phyllo called kandaifi. It's like that bird's nest on the bottom layer and the, like a, a cream custard in the middle and then whipped cream on top. That's a great dessert we have that there, too, called Ekmek Kandeifi. It's a famous, uh, one of my favorite Greek desserts.
3: Oh, it sounds delicious. Before, uh, I, before I forget, I want to tell us where people can go, uh, where the eons are, the location, so they, you know, it'll plug out to uh, wherever your restaurants are. are
5: the best, man. We, we have one on 2nd Avenue and 34th Street. We have one in Fresh Meadows, Queens, on 188th Street. And we have one in New Jersey, which is on Route Seventeen in Paramus, New Jersey, and we have one in the Wegmans Plaza in Montvale, New Jersey, right off of Grand Avenue over there. And that's what we have for now for eons. You know, we got four of them going and, you know, we're providing good food for uh, good people right now. Thank God. Well, we wish you uh, a of success. Any any more expansion plans? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's sad what's happening, but, you know, with, with what's happening also, there's probably going to be some opportunities. So I like to open in the city. You know, we were, before this all happened, you know, I was, my focus has always been on eons, you know, 100%. I'm all about that. And I wanted to open up another one in New York City, and we're going to open, we're looking at spaces on like on 46th Street, between 5th and 6th. Finally, like our home run, you know, we experimented. We went into the these, you know, in, in my mind, you know, you open up eons in a bad location, right? And I know it's a stupid thing to think, but if it succeeds in a bad location, obviously, if you go to a good location and pay the rent, it's going to succeed. You know what I mean? It's going to go. So it's kind of like that dumb luck type of thing. And that was going to be like our final, you know, true test, the mothership, and then the whole COVID thing happens. You know what I mean? So we put it on a backtrack.
3: Yeah. Well, if I could
5: suggest, my
3: office is downtown Manhattan by a trade center, so uh, you might want to find a location down there. You're right.
5: Yeah, and we put a deal on a, on 100 Maiden Lane down there.
3: There you go. I, uh, how about outside the New York, New Jersey area? Anything's been
5: no, You know, I like Westchester. You know, I think Westchester; those areas are going to be good, like Rye. You know, Hartsdale. You know, those are good, good spots also. As the people are moving out of the city we find that the suburban places are doing well. And I also like Long Island, you know, I like Roslyn, you know, those places down there is very, they, they get it. You know, the clientele is
2: care about their, what they eat, you know, the millennials. You know. Georgia, I don't want to let you go without asking this. I was thinking about that. Did I talk too much guys. I'm sorry. You know, you, you, so you. you should have told me, you know, no, you, well, the worst thing is to have a guest that says nothing. Yeah. We don't want that. No, no. You know? <laughs> When you go, you know, they make the, the, this isn't, of course, barbecue or whatever, but, you know, the meat that's on the, the that's spinning on the stick oh, and they make that, the, yeah. the euros from it. Uh-huh. What?
5: You say that like a Greek, you know, man. You got to say, yeah, right. like everybody else.
2: <laughs> I think I must have, I'm going to take one of those tests because You've I- am going to be Greek, man. Exactly. <laughs> what is that out? exactly? You know, there's a couple
5: of them, right? And the ones in Greece are the layered stack, uh, normally pork- you know what I mean? ones are a popular one in Greece, mm-hmm. but also lamb, you know, the lamb stacked ones, you know, right. and the, the cone ones, that's the ground beef is normally a mix between lamb and beef and they press it all together. They, they make little sections of it and stack it up high, high, high. So it weights down. And, uh, you know, I love this stuff, man. I I do
2: like, it's like, you know, if it's made well, it's a good, great street food, you know? Yeah. I saw a recipe where you could actually make it for the barbecue, and you can make oh, it on your rotisserie.
5: You're, you you got a job, man. You're good, man. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> definitely like go online and make a mix of it and put some cool Greek spices and herbs in it and kind of make like a meatloaf, that kind of a thing. Press it, you know, bake it in the oven, cool it down, and cut the slices on it and put it on the barbecue grill. Man. A little lemon and olive oil. You're getting me hungry now. I didn't eat yet, man. You know? uh, <laughs> I didn't eat.
2: So- uh, one last thing for me. I want to know. T- tell me a little bit about the TV Food Network. I saw that video. My God, that was a there? nightmare.
5: You know what? I didn't even want to do that because it's like I was going through that the stress with my partner at the time opening up the place. I told you the lawyers and it was just mm-hmm. bad timing. And I didn't think it was real. I was like, oh, come on, it's got to be somewhat staged. You know what I mean? It can't be. You know, so I was so unprepared, man. And it's like five o'clock in the morning. I was just with the lawyers the day before. It's real, man. You know what I mean? It's like uh, you pressure. You got like 15 minutes to make something, and you know what I mean. I got nervous a little bit for, for the first time I think in my life.
2: And, really?
5: You know. But it was. I made it to the second round, and I could have made it further. But I was getting cocky. I should have kept it simple. You know what I mean? I my roots. You know. Now that I look, I, I wouldn't mind doing it again. Actually, I said I would never do it again, but you know, I would like to throw it out there again. You know what I mean? In a different mind frame. You know? It was fun though. TV Food
0: Network
2: what amazes me about these these reality cooking shows is that and and i don't know how much of it is real and staged is that you they give you one meat or one thing that you have to use and then they have a stocked pantry and you just have to figure out a dish when you are faced with something like that even if you're at home and you're trying to figure out what to make How did your mind work like that? It's just to to put those things together, the yeah. ingredients together like that. Yeah. You know what's funny? My mantra is always
5: kiss, keep it stupid simple, right? Keep it stupid simple. And I wasn't thinking that there. I don't know what the hell happened to me. With, and you have all these cameras on you. It's not a joke. A friend of mine is like, oh, you yeah, have like 10 guys, with you know, holding you, staring you in the face. You know, I think it was more me at the time with all's going on, not being prepared with like, 500 cameras, like, <laughs> right, right on top of you. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, okay, I got to impress these judges, so you try to be a little bit fancier. Right. And it was like, no, yeah, like I would, like at home, I would never, you know, I would just take a grill and put it on lemon olive oil on it, you know, and throw it out there. And that's what we, you want anyway, these guys. So I keep it stupid simple. That's the best thing.
2: I was watching an episode the other night of uh, Iron Chef, I guess an old episode. I don't even know if they are new episodes anymore. Old episode of Iron Chef. And these guys are making the most incredible foods. And I'm thinking to myself, because they're bringing them up to the judges. And you see there, they make, you know, you can't even, these things that they're creating, and the judges are sitting there and they're saying, well, it's a little, you know, this and that. It's like, wait a second. (laughs) You gotta be kidding me. Yeah. who are you this guy just created this yeah. incredible dish and you're saying well i don't know it's a little this you know in 29,
5: like, in 29 minutes <laughs> yeah i mean are you kidding me as a chef you plant out your you know you have days and you plan it and you taste it and you test it and you're we're trained to do that you know that yeah you know you these shows man they are uh, they're they kill me <laughs> From, well,
3: well, George, I want people to know where they can uh, reach you. There's You have a couple of websites. Chef George Giudatis, that's G-E-O-R-G-I-A-D-E-S.com. We can find your story there. Also, eons.greek.com. Yep, that's the, that's the ones, yep. All right. I appreciate
5: it, guys. You
2: guys are we, good people, man. Thank you so we, much. We appreciate I appreciate it very much. Can I ask you one more thing, Jeff? I'm not done. I have one more question. You have a restaurant. Uh-huh. Food critic comes in. Have you ever had a situation where you knew that the guy was a food critic or you 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 knew that the food critic was coming? You know, I've never known. I've never known. Like when we were at Avra and we
5: got I think we got like two and a half stars at the New York Times, something like that. But yeah, I didn't I didn't know. I never you we were so busy back then. Like at Avra at one point, we were doing like oh, five hundred people a night, four hundred and fifty people a night. You don't give a shit, the food critics there, man.
4: <laughs> <laughs> right?
5: It was an open kitchen. <laughs> I remember one night at Avra. I was so busy that 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 restaurant, and we had an open kitchen with a table there. And I'm cursing to get the food out. And the manager's like, George, shh. There's customers behind them. Like, do they want their salmon? <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of tension you are back then, you know. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I guess heat of but the moment. Like, I
5: guess I mean, would you stop everything? I'm not that kind of guy. I'm sure there are some chefs like these high-end, you know, like, you know, when I get, you know what, thinking back, you're talking like me as a chef, but going, working at these places like La Cote Bass and La Bernadette and then Park Avenue Cafe. Yeah, these guys, they have pictures of them, you know, signs, you know, they're crazy, man. They look out for them. I remember and like the walkways and the, you know, the common rooms that we had. Change them. You had pictures of like Gail Green and Brian Miller and all the all the people that would give you bonuses
2: if you recognize, you know who's mm-hmm. coming in because it could well, make
5: or break, you know, right.
2: Plate, I, I know so. there's a stake place in, in Manhattan and and just prior to the pandemic it just messed up how these people hold that much power, man. You know what I mean? Right.
5: They're not even chefs. I always said that it should be these food critics should have like a panel of like four people, you know, a chef. Uh, a person who doesn't know about food, a person who's a foodie, a writer who knows about food, and then freaking make a, a story, you know what I mean, about it? what was going on, you know? Yeah. But I yeah. guess there isn't no forgiveness. You're right. Like, I would say, oh, they're probably busy. That's why. But they shouldn't be overcooked, you know, and it shouldn't be. They're paying, I guess. Yeah. You know?
2: Right. It was a steak place.
5: You know, Lugers? It they got w- right. Really and. Hard. I think it was, man. People they ripped.
2: They were like, what yeah. happened to this place? And it used to be so was, good. And, yeah. Yeah. And that was, I'm sure that took away a lot of their business. Oh,
5: yeah. I mean, an ego back then. I mean, they've been around for a hundred years. You don't want to get a bad review like that ever. So it definitely take a hit. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what it is with restaurant business, man. You're only as good as your last meal, right? You can't live, you know, that's the problem in the restaurant business. You know, it's
2: tough. Well, I'm going to give you five stars for this. Five chef hats. However, you know, you get top awesome. We are very appreciative that you came on. We're honored to have a chef of your caliber coming on our show. You really, you classed us up, basically. Jeff, (laughs) we're we're now almost respectable.
5: (laughs) Yaya would be proud. Yaya would be proud. (laughs) Next time, please.
2: (laughs) Yes, bring everyone, bring them all. I'll
4: bring it. <laughs> and bring
2: the Windex, bring it all. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and we thank you very much for joining us on guys, Baseball man. and BBQ. You thank you. It.
3: And if you're in the New York area, check out Eons. I think they're in New York
2: and New Jersey. Did I say that right, Lynn? Eons? Eons, you say very well. It's George Georgiadis that you uh, yes. <laughs> you you always ask me to say. I don't know exactly. why, but you do. Uh, but yes, yeah. Eons, I've had Eons, okay, right. mm-hmm. and it is really good. A lot of locations, but the food's excellent. It it's really good, and and I just, you know, you wish someone like that who's just fun loving. I mean, he really he loves what he does he he wanted to be on with us you wish someone like that a ton of success that's someone you hope gets everything that they want because he works very hard for it and i he he was great so yes george we we thank you also thanks for putting up with the fact that you know we did it in two parts but you had a lot to say and we didn't want to cut you off in the first so we're glad that actually we spread it out and now jeff yep you have a Baseball rant.
3: Well, I I don't know if it's a rant or not. but uh, Again,
2: not knowing if it's a rant. I
3: I just read that Baseball Hall of Fame has now rescheduled the ceremonies, the Hall of Fame ceremonies for September 8th. Now it's going to be an outdoor ticketed event. And Mm -hmm. now they're going to have some people, they're going to allow some fans in. I'm not sure what the amount is, but they're going to have fans attend the ceremonies. And I just can't help but think that this was just because of Mr. Derek Jita, who is going into the Hall of Fame. Now, this comes on the heels of nobody being elected from the last election, which was ridiculous. And they've announced that due to COVID, they're going to have a a televised indoor event, only a a few dignitaries. But now, because of Derek Jita, he is going to have a a ceremony. Now, it's also with with Larry Walker and with Ted Simmons and the induction of the late Marvin Miller. But if if you take... Derek Jeter, out of that equation, they are not moving the ceremony. They're doing it only for him. Which, you know what? They're putting him up on a, uh, you know, like he's bigger than the game,
2: which I have a problem with. So, okay. That's it. I, I gotcha. I gotcha. I understand. Not a rant. And if you dis- disagree with me,
3: or if you agree with me, you give us a call. <laughs> 516-855-8214. Or you can email us at bbq at gmail.com. Facebook, where baseball and BBQ. Twitter, our Twitter address is at baseball and BBQ. YouTube, baseball and BBQ. Instagram, baseball and barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And please rate and review us.
2: So, Jeff, second part of the show, Andrew Marinus writes this book on Glenn Burke. I think just listen to it. It's called Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke. That's all I want to say is just hope you guys appreciate the interview. Uh, We certainly did. We appreciate the book, Glenn Burke's life story. We'll see you on the other side of it. Andrew Marinus is a best-selling author of
3: nonfiction books with teens and on the intersection of sports, history, and social justice. A lifelong Brewers fan and former media relations manager for the Tampa Bay Rays, Andrew manages the Sports and Society Initiative at Vanderbilt University and is a contributor to ESPN's race and sports website, The Undefeated. He lives in Nashville with his wife and two children. Andrew's new book is a story of Glenn Burke called Singled Out. Burke was the first openly gay ball player in Major League Baseball and the inventor of the high five. And we're welcome to Baseball and Barbecue, Andrew Marinus. Thank you, Andrew.
0: Thanks Welcome, for having Andrew. Me on, guys, uh, baseball and barbecue are two of my favorite things, so uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Uh, us too, Andrew. This was such a, a great book, and I encourage everyone, everyone on the
3: listeners, and everybody, to go out and buy it. I mean, it really evoked a lot of emotions, and in really the society we live in now, is really a, a, just a wonderful, wonderful book. Why did you want to pick the subject of Glenn, Glenn Burke and, and, and put it out there?
0: Sure. Well, thank you for those kind words. My first two books are also dealing with sports and uh, social issues. My first book, Strong Inside, was a biography of Perry Wallace, who was the first black basketball player in the SEC. And it's a story of what it was like to be a pioneer during the civil rights era in the South. Uh, My second book, Games of Deception, is about the first U.S. Olympic uh, men's basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany. So it's about the invention and evolution of basketball, but you know, in the context of of fascism and anti-Semitism. So I was looking for another book that would allow me to write about what I love, sports, but also you know, my interests in in history and social justice. And so baseball is my favorite sport. Obviously, my first two books were about basketball. So I was interested in doing a baseball story. And in talking about Glenn Burke with a few people that I respect and admire, you know, the fact that what an interesting story this man has, and yet most people uh, don't know that story. I, you know, I'm more interested in writing books about either people or events that haven't been written about too much. You know, um, most people weren't familiar with the story of Perry Wallace. Certainly people are familiar with the Nazi Olympics, but not necessarily that that's where basketball got started in the Olympics. And so, with Glenn Burke, I thought I had a chance to combine everything that I'm interested in baseball, social justice, history, and a new story. So, it all came together.
2: So, Andrew, I've been trying to, to, to think since I finished this book of exactly how I wanted to start this. First of all, you're right, baseball and barbecue, two fantastic topics. Yeah. I, I say they're like a Reese's, you know, <laughs> they're perfect together. together. As I read this book, And and we're going to get so into this. There's so many things that I want to ask you. But as I approach the end of this book, uh, I'm not afraid to say that I cried. I seriously got emotional. It is thought provoking. It is beautifully written. The story is sad. And it's just but but it's just it's it's heart wrenching what this man endured. And I seriously I teared up now. Listeners of this podcast know Jeff is, Jeff's usually the serious one. (laughs) And I usually am am kind of, uh, I try to be a little humorous. And I thought about talking to you and I thought there is no humor to, to do this is serious. But then I thought about Glenn Burke and, and you tell me if, if you agree with this, I kind of had the feeling that Glenn Burke would not want us to be sad. Glenn Burke was a personality like like no other. And I think that Glenn Burke would be happy if we found some joy in this. And we did joke a little. I'm not sure where to throw in a joke, but he seemed like that kind of person. So when you started this book and you had Glenn Burke and... You had maybe you had the Eric Sherman book. And of course, there's things on YouTube about him and and various things. You went into it thinking one thing. What most surprised you about this man as you did your research?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for mentioning the emotions that you felt as you were reading the book. That means a lot to me. You know, it was a tragic ending to his life, but I 100% agree with you that Glenn was a fun-loving person, you know, he was a funny person, he was the life of the Dodgers clubhouse. Uh, everybody that met him loved him. So I agree with you. I mean, obviously I didn't have a chance to meet him. He he died in 1995, 25 years before I started working on this book. So I never met him, but and I certainly can't speak for him, but I I think from what I know about him he would agree with you. You know, let's celebrate the fun aspects of Glenn Burke that, you know, the, the feeling that people felt when they were around him. Uh, as much as we talk about the tragic end to his life. The honest answer to your question, though, is everything was surprising to me. Um, I remembered from my childhood Glenn's 1978 Topps baseball card, you know, where he's swinging the bat in his road Dodgers uniform. And the first thing that I did when I got started on the book, as you mentioned, was read Eric Sherman's book that he wrote with Glenn as Glenn was passing away. But, you know, other than the fact that Glenn was the first openly gay Major League Baseball player and he had invented the high five, which were essentially just two pieces of trivia that I knew about him, but that I knew made the elements of an interesting book. You know, I just had to find out what else was there. But everything that I was finding out was a surprise or or was new to me. I was surprised that he was a, just as good or better of a basketball player as he was a baseball player. I was surprised that he didn't come out, you know, until or even recognize himself without coming out publicly that he was gay until he was well into his professional baseball career. You know, um, I wasn't sure of the circumstances when he did come out publicly until I read Eric's book and learned about that. Uh, I was surprised that he was such a life force in the Dodger clubhouse. You know, you think about what a veteran team they had. In the 70s, that infield in particular, together forever, it seemed like. And yet, when this rookie shows up, they welcomed him and they loved his presence there. So that was surprising to me. And then, you know, the other aspects of his life that he played softball in San Francisco after he was run out of Major League Baseball. Can you imagine starting Major League Center fielder showing up on your softball team? You know, (laughs) So that was fun to me. And the fact that he loved to imitate Richard Pryor and Rudy Ray Moore and James Brown, you know, what, just what an interesting person. And then here's one other thing that was surprised to me. I was in the Oakland A's clubhouse interviewing Steve Vucinich, who's their clubhouse manager and has been for decades. And he was a friend of Glenn's when they were both 12 years old and was the clubhouse manager when Glenn was playing for the A's in the 70s. He's still there now and he mentioned, well, you know about Glenn being the first major league player to wear Nikes, right? And, you know, I hadn't heard that before. And the shoe rep, Bill Frechette, you know, is still around. So I was able to interview him for the book. And so that was a fun surprise as well. Plenty of surprises for me. Absolutely. Uh, that,
3: that surprise, when you mentioned the Nike, I was going to ask you about the later, but you think you brought it up. That Bill Frechette was a a vendor at dodger stadium and then he i think in the book you described he was signed for glenn burke at a signing and he signed something and he invited over to the shoe store and all of a sudden i mean glenn burke was really instrumental maybe in the you know the popularity of
0: nikes and baseball absolutely i mean at that point the when they met in the 70s nike wasn't even making baseball cleats yet but as a basketball player glenn knew about nike And as you mentioned, Frechette was just a young guy as a Dodger fan to get paid to go to Dodger games as a frozen malt vendor. That was kind of his side hustle. But he was one of the first employees of Nike, period. And they had a small chain of shoe stores in California at the time called the Athletic Department. He ran the store in Santa Monica, wasn't sure if Nike was going to really make it or not. And he met Glenn at a signing on a Sunday afternoon, like he said, at Dodger Stadium, invited him by the store. Glenn came over and was intrigued by some soccer cleats that they had for artificial service soccer shoes. And he bought them and then uh, – or didn't buy them, but he was given them. And then uh, invited Freshette to visit the Dodger clubhouse, introduced him to some of the other players. And so in the 1977 NLCS at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia – Glenn and some of the other Dodgers dyed these soccer shoes blue, Dodger blue, and they wore them at the vet. And that was the first time any MLB players wore Nikes in a game. And here, 2020, 2021, Nike's the official uniform supplier of Major League Baseball. And it all goes back to Glenn Burke and this malt vendor at Dodger Stadium. And
3: at both that malt vendor was high up in, in Nike, right? Like a vice president or something?
0: Yeah, he ended up being one of the top executives at Nike from running that store he was in charge of their entire baseball division until retiring recently. But yeah, he's one of, I think, the first 10 or 15 employees of, of Nike, period. So he's a well-known name in that company. Thanks to Glenn Burke. Wow. Yeah.
2: Andrew, he had relationships with Davy Lopes, Dusty Baker, two, seemed to be uh, two significant relationships in his life. Before you talk about those relationships, were you able to talk to the two of them as you were researching this book.
0: Yes, I was able to speak with both of them. Uh, David Lopes, I talked to just over the telephone. Dusty Baker, I was able to meet in person. Uh, we were trying to schedule it for a long time. I live in Nashville. He's out in California. But at the time that I was researching and writing the book, he was not yet the Astros manager. He was retired, I think, but, you know, scouting for the Giants sort of part-time. And he was in Asheville, North Carolina to scout a game and told me that. And so I immediately drove over to Asheville, which is maybe four and a half hours, five hours from Nashville. And he said he would have maybe an hour before this game that he had to go scout, but I ended up making him late for the game, but Dusty, such a nice person. And he seemed to be enjoying the conversation. We ended up talking for close to three hours about Glenn and his friendship with Glenn, the first high five, you know, which they did together Uh, i'd loved talking to dusty baker everybody had told me what a prince of a man he was and that was my experience with him in person you know
3: glenn burke had other relationships and uh, in in your book i found it very surprising i I guess here's a, a, a black gay ball player and he was friends with a man named doug goldman who, came, who was a Jewish guy from, uh, you know, swanky uh, part of California, who's the great grandson of Levi Strauss. How did they meet and how was their friendship?
0: Yeah, that, you mentioned surprises <laughs> earlier, sort of figuring out that friendship and, and locating Mr. Goldman, getting him on the phone, doing that interview. As you mentioned, he was an heir to the Levi Strauss fortunes. He's a big philanthropist in San Francisco now. They met at Cal Berkeley Glenn grew up in on the line between Oakland and Berkeley. I think his family moved back and forth as a sort of a pickup basketball player. You know, he played in all the parks, Bushrod Park, Famous Park, and also at Harmon Gym, which is the gym at Cal. And he would play with guys like Phil Chenier and the actual Cal Berkeley players, even when Glenn was just in high school. And Doug Goldman was the student there at Cal as well. And he liked to hang around in the gym. He wasn't as good a players as those guys, but he would play some and watch some. And met Glenn there. They also ran into each other at some parties. And he felt like Glenn was a down-to-earth, funny guy. They both liked to smoke marijuana (laughs) together. And he felt like a lot of people in his life seemed to be after his money. Glenn wasn't. You know, he just wanted to have a good time. He appreciated that Golden could give him a ride sometimes because Glenn didn't have a car. And so this unusual friendship started, and it lasted for the rest of Glenn's life. Goldman ends up being one of the people that tries to help Glenn later on in life when Burke is experiencing homelessness and addiction. Goldman tries to, uh, you know, get him into some treatment clinics and eventually into essentially a a hospice type of program for homeless people with AIDS in San Francisco. But, you know, I really enjoyed my interviews with Goldman. What an unlikely uh, friendship it was.
2: Exactly. We're talking to the author of Singled Out which is the true story of Glenn Burke. This is Andrew Marinus. I want to just say a couple of things. For, for anyone that's not familiar with Glenn's story, and, and I wasn't really that familiar with it, and shame on me, because this is something I, I think is very important. Glenn Burke was a phenomenal athlete who unfortunately faced two forms of discrimination. One, because of the color of his skin, and two, because of his sexuality and and it, it and as you're reading this story white gay men would be prejudiced because he was black so <laughs> you would think that these people that were discriminated against would have uh, some compassion and even they because of, so because of the color of his skin did not have compassion so he had it double tough but Glenn Burke, was living what many men of that time many men and women had to hide and not say th- their true self and he definitely in the book you brought out the, the fact that he got into some fights and and it seemed to be that this uh, keeping this secret was tormenting him, and that definitely uh, definitely caused him to have a lot of tension in his life and probably affected his career. You later on, of course, it affected his career. But I mean, as a player, even in the beginning, it affected his career. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, it was important to me to present Glenn as the complete person, you know, and oftentimes these stories about pioneers or trailblazers, you almost expect the person to have to be perfect you know right. and, and that wasn't it unreal- was not right and that's unrealistic expectation right. of anyone and glenn was not perfect but i think that just humanizes him and makes his story mm-hmm. all the more relatable uh, to people you know he wasn't necessarily a great student he didn't necessarily have a big plan for life after baseball he was prone to get in brawls sometimes with his own teammates you know but his teammates still loved him they loved the energy he brought to the park every day But I do think it's important what you mentioned, that this two-pronged discrimination he was facing, especially having to hide who he really was, look over his shoulder at all times, not even be able to take advantage of some of the support networks that were there for the other Black players. You know, Dusty Baker talked a lot about kind of the the fraternity of Black players in Major League Baseball at that time and how even players from opposing teams would get together for lunch, you know, or – Would talk, especially as they're coming up through the minors, hang out together in these small southern or midwestern towns where, you know, they knew that they might be facing some heavy racism and stick together. Glenn wasn't even able to really stick together with his black teammates as much as the other guys did because he didn't want to go to the same clubs that they did. You know, he wasn't interested in finding a woman on a road trip. He was interested in finding where the gay bars were in whatever town. And so slowly, he begins to. separate himself even though he is such a social person such a lively person the guys wanted to be around him and that's when they begin to suspect like well why isn't Glenn hanging out with us why is it then we get back from a road trip he's headed to the other end of the airport to get his ride who is it that's picking him up you know and so uh, without that social support without feeling like he can confide in people like it's no surprise that he wasn't able to become the full Ball player that he might have been. You know, Major League Baseball is tough enough without having those extra stresses and without that support. So, you know, he was a phenomenal athlete. He hit over five or over 305 times in the minor leagues. He set stolen base records in a couple different rungs of the minor leagues, but he never really was able to uh, flourish as an everyday ball player in the major leagues
3: can you talk about his journey through the minor leagues i know he went through utah which can't be a very big i guess gay population at the time i mean i i, I don't know I may, I may be ignorant to that but i just don't see a lot of uh, gay bars in what ogden utah is exactly. that right?
0: yeah or many black people for that matter so right. that was the first place that he played in the minor leagues and ended up turning out to be the last place he played in the minor leagues too it was a you know, a rookie league team for the Dodgers. And it was a triple A team for the A's when he was uh, ending his career. And so you're right, that wasn't easy for him. And he also played in Waterbury, Connecticut. That's where he ends up realizing to his own self that he was gay, uh, has his first uh, gay experiences. And it's the first time a teammate really figures it out. Marvin Webb, one of his friends from the Bay Area Saw, you know, a visitor that Glenn had from California staying with him in this small room at the YMCA and asked Glenn, "Hey, am I right about what I think's going on here? He also played in Albuquerque, you know, the longtime AAA team for the Dodgers and loved to torment his managers (laughs) in Albuquerque and at other stops in the minor leagues. He wasn't one necessarily to uh, willingly submit to authority, you know probably especially as an old-school uh, white guy. you know. So in his last game in Albuquerque, when he knew he had already been called up to the Dodgers, but he's still finishing out this one game, the last out of the game is a fly ball hit in his direction. He switches hands with his glove. <laughs> he's a right-handed player. He switches the glove from his left hand to his right hand, catches the fly ball, runs back in the dugout, and tells the manager, you know, now you'll have something to remember me by <laughs> when I'm up <laughs> in Los Angeles.
2: There's a story in the book about Tommy Lasorda. It seems like you can't have a book about that period of time mentioning the Dodgers of any right. sort without mentioning Tommy Lasorda. But it talked a lot about Tommy Lasorda's son. And that's a whole nother story in itself. How much of it did you... I, I don't want to ruin the book. I mean, there's so many interesting stories in this book. But it, it's basically Tommy Lasorda had a son that i guess everybody knew was gay i don't know that tommy lasorda ever admitted it and then his son died from aids but that was the other thing he Mm -hmm. never admitted that he claimed it was pneumonia or whatever but apparently glenn burke and tommy's son had a special relationship we don't know at least in the book and i i would assume that your research wasn't conclusive on it or maybe it was In the book that they had a friendship we don't know the extent of it they were close in age considering that i think tommy's son was about 19 glenn was maybe 22 and they formed a special friendship can you tell us a little bit about that
0: yeah that's right so tommy lasorda's son tommy jr whose nickname was spunky lasorda was gay did die of aids tommy lasorda didn't ever publicly acknowledge either of those things as you mentioned, even Glenn, you know, he was asked by uh, Eric Sherman as Glenn was passing away if, if he had had more than just a friendship with Tommy Jr. And he said that was really none of anyone's business, you know. So some friends and teammates said, oh, absolutely. Others said, no way, you know. So I just don't know. Ultimately, it's it's basically irrelevant. They were good friends, at least, to the point that they even discussed pulling a prank on Tommy Sr. together where they were both gonna show up at his house as if they were on a, a date. Spunky was gonna be dressed like a woman with, in pigtails. And Glenn Burke said that first Tommy Lasorda would have died of a heart attack and then he would have shot both of them in the head, you know, if he had <laughs> seen this. So the story, you know, it's a complicated relationship I think between Tommy Sr. and his son. A lot of families at that time if a son was gay, would completely disown or shun that son, you know, and that's how a lot of guys ended up moving to San Francisco and living in the Castro where, where Glenn did. Lasorda senior always maintained a loving relationship with his son. You can say, well, how loving was it if he wouldn't acknowledge who he really was, but uh, they still would have dinner together every Sunday night when the Dodgers were in town he would bring his son to spring training He came on road trips. So it wasn't like he was trying to distance himself from him, but You know, I think that that friendship between Glenn and Spunky was not something that Lasorda approved of, and ultimately it led to the Dodgers trading Burke to the Oakland A's. And we we can talk more about the proposal that the Dodgers made to Glenn first. But, Mm -hmm. you know, Tommy would, you know, the one thing I put in the book I hope people pick up on is that, you know, Steve Garvey was sort of the All-American boy on that team and the ladies' man, and, and Lasorda was quoted as saying that if Le- garvey ever came over to meet his daughter he'd lock the doors and not let him leave you know which is quite a contrast to him not even wanting burke to be friends w- with his son
3: yes and let's talk about that proposal because uh,
0: i was just looking through the
3: book and there's this, this picture he has Glen Burke and al campanis who made that proposal to glen burke you want to talk a little about that that's another thing that i was really surprised about in the book
0: Yeah, so after the 77 season, where Glenn has had a pretty good rookie season, you know, Rick Monday was hurt quite a bit that year and Glenn would fill in for him in the outfield. Glenn started two games in the NLCS against the Phillies. He started game one of the 77 World Series at Yankee Stadium. So he's feeling pretty good about his position with the Dodgers, you know, as a minimum as a fourth outfielder. And Campanis comes up to the Bay Area to see him in the off season. And Glenn thinks it's to talk about his role on the team for the next year. Instead, Campanis tells him, uh, "You know, Glenn, all the players on the team are married, except for you, and we feel like it calms the guys down and they can focus on baseball when they get married." And Glenn said to a woman, <laughs> and <laughs> campanus said, "Yes," and Glenn said, "No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that." And then Campanis said, "Well, you know, we'll give you seventy-five thousand dollars for a nice honeymoon." which, I mean, that's the hell of a honeymoon now. <laughs> that yeah. was the average major league salary then. And so it was obviously more of a bribe than a true honeymoon bonus. And Glenn refused to go along with it. You know, um, and it was clear at that point that management of the Dodgers knew he was gay, wanted to cover it up. And if Glenn wasn't going to go along with them and cover it up, then they didn't want him on the team anymore. And so when spring training starts to start the 78 season, there are articles, and the sports writers didn't know Glenn was gay yet, but there are articles saying that his days with the Dodgers are numbered. A Dodger management management starting to badmouth Glenn to the press, saying he's a problem, that he, he's never going to learn how to hit, and so pretty quickly in the '78 season, he's traded to the Oakland A's. And when he's traded, you really see how popular he was with his teammates, guys like Steve Garvey and Don Sutton. Sportswriters said they were—they saw them crying, you know, at their lockers when the news went around the clubhouse. Davey Lopes confronts Al Campanis in the clubhouse, and Lopes knew that Glenn was gay, and he wanted Campanis to admit it. Now, he, he wouldn't. You know, they said they were just trading for a veteran outfielder and Billy North who could help the team more they felt in the short term. But Dusty Baker approached the Dodgers' trainer. You know, trainers know everything. So Baker said, why'd they trade Glenn? And he said... You know, well, because he's gay. And Baker said they know that. And the trainer said everybody knows that. So, you know, his friends on the team were, were highly distraught that Glenn had been traded. Yes. And
3: he's traded to the A's, as you said, where his manager is a, I guess, they graduate from the same high school. And right. he'd have that connection. But Billy Martin wasn't the nicest guy in the world, was he?
0: No. When Glenn first got there, Billy Martin wasn't the manager yet. You know, but the next year he is. And like you said, Glenn thought, well, this could be a good thing for his career. They both went to Berkeley High School, or both from, you know, Oakland, Berkeley area. Billy's kind of a scrappy fighter type guy, like Glenn Burke considered himself. But and I asked Mike Norris and some of the other A's players, shooty Babbitt, if they thought Billy Martin was racist. And they said no, that he he was he treated the black players great, but he definitely was homophobic. And he told sports writers that he wasn't going to let Glenn quote unquote contaminate his team. Uh, he called him the F word, you know, in front of uh, other A's players. And Glenn was demoted to AAA and knew he was never going to get caught up uh, by Billy Martin. And that's why he ends up retiring from baseball far too young. And I, I think it's unfair to say that it was Glenn's choice, even though, you know, literally it was Glenn's choice to quit playing. But, you know, I think he was driven from the game is a more fair way to put it. When the Dodgers would not allow him on the team because of who he was, Billy Martin would not allow him to play for the Oakland A's because of who he was. So really Glenn was in a no win situation at that point. Right. And and Billy Martin also was instrumental in, I guess, ruining
3: Derek Bryant's career because he thought he he mistook him for Glenn and and
0: Bryant never was given a chance. Yeah. Unbelievable story. And Mike Norris told me that story as well. It was, Spring training game, Bryant's in the outfield. Billy Martin mistakes him for Glenn Burke and says, "Get that f off the field." Pulls him from that spring training game, and and Bryant never gets another shot with the A's again. So I mean, you feel see how someone can be so blinded by their their hatred of one person that it ends up costing another player a chance at a major league career.
3: I found that's so so sad. I mean, yeah. not just for Glenn Burke, but also Derek Bryant. I mean, Absolutely. you know, you know I'm sure that
0: there were, I mean, who's to say if Bryant could have gotten another chance, but, you know, certainly not in that organization. And You never know how one organization giving up on you affects how you're perceived by other teams. So that was the end of his career.
2: Right. Yeah, that was interesting, that story, because I, I just questioned like that ended his career. I, it was, it was interesting. I wanted to know more. I I want to know more. So I'm going to look him up and see if I can find anything on the internet about him. Yeah. Well, you Um, know,
0: and I think that's a fair thing to question, right? I mean, that's the story that Mike Norris believes and that other A's players believe. Certainly, Bryant was pulled mistakenly and another got another chance. And so, I mean, I think you can connect those dots, but there's probably other dots in there too that, that we just don't know.
2: Andrew, I love history. Jeff loves history. And of course, we love baseball history, but baseball history and, and sports in general, they don't happen in a vacuum. And what's great about your book and some of the really good books out there that, that kind of are above all others is the way you bring events that are going on at the same time into this. So, for instance, you, you talk a lot about uh, Anita Bryant who was you know who 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 was basically uh on a on a campaign against uh, the gay population and 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 trying to just you know rallying against them and how it was against god and all of this and 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 then you have Harvey Milk which you talked a lot about and and the and and I was going to say the incidents more than an incident uh his murder and 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 that and these things are all very important to they paint a picture of what our society was like at the time that, you know, for, if somebody's reading this and they're basing it on what's happening now and how people are freer to come out now and people of the same sex can marry now and things like that, then they have to know what was going on at the time if they were to even think, well, why didn't he just come out and why was... Because look at what society was at the time when you you also go into AIDS, you know, the whole AIDS epidemic, which was, and and how it vilified people of the time, you know, they were, I guess the gay population was getting, maybe they were beginning to get their rights and things like that. And then all of a sudden AIDS occurs and it puts them right back you know, at square one and, oh, this is, you know, the disease and it's the gay disease. And it was so many things in this book that are not just baseball history, are our culture. And and I commend you. I, I will tell everyone listening to this, you will not be sorry to get this book. It is fantastic. Andrew, I just want you to know how much I thoroughly enjoyed this, and um, I hope Thank you know you. that you really wrote a great book.
0: Thanks, Larry. That means uh, that means a ton to me. And what you said, you know, that that's the types of nonfiction books I like to read too. That place the story into context. You know, and I didn't have to stretch very far to make that context relevant to Glenn's life. You know, you mentioned Anita Bryant when she's leading the uh, anti-gay rights campaigns in Florida. It's at the same time Glenn's at Dodgertown in spring training, you know, same time Harvey Milk is ascending as a politician and a community organizer in San Francisco. It's the same time Glenn's moving there, you know, in the off season, uh, when Milk is killed, that's where Glenn's living. There's the Briggs Amendment in California that would have stripped gay people of their rights as, you know, not to be fired just because of their sexuality. And that's when Glenn's trying to Earn a living as a gay man in Major League Baseball, and is ultimately run out of baseball because he's gay in the state of California. You know, so these weren't totally unrelated things that I was bringing together in the book. I think it really does help you understand all the pressures and the obstacles that Glenn was up against. In some ways, he was coming along at just the right time, as he's becoming, you know, a man in the 1970s. This is the sort of the beginning of the gay rights movement that he's living through. Uh, right after he's run out of baseball, at least he can live in the Castro, which in the late 70s, early 80s is kind of at its height, but then immediately drops off the cliff uh, when the AIDS epidemic starts. And ultimately, Glenn dies of AIDS, you know, in 1995. And so all these headlines in the country at that time were currents in Glenn's real life. And that's what was um, I think when you talked about the emotion at the end of the book. You know, you see that all Glenn's been up against. And what he's, you know, thinking about sort of the ups and downs of his life. And you can really feel that. uh, So many things that he went through related to baseball and just as a person. And so I think ultimately his story is, is really tragic, but it's also hopefully inspiring. And that's what Glenn wanted more than anything as he was talking to Eric Sherman at the end of his life, is that hoping that what he had been through, barrier that he had broken, would ultimately make things easier for some gay athlete or just gay people in general uh, in the future. And, you know, thankfully, like you said, times have changed a lot in the country in terms of the overall culture, but not necessarily in the sports world quite as much, at least in the men's sports world. You see more progression in women's soccer, women's basketball, and women athletes in general. But, you know, there still hasn't been an out Major League Baseball player, you know, while they were still active. Billy Bean came out, but it was, again, after he was out of the game. So we're still waiting for that, that Glenn Burke on the field, you know, that everyone knows uh, is gay, and we don't know what the reaction will be. Hopefully, it will be supportive, but you just don't know. Right. After baseball, after he run out of baseball, he went back to the Castro District, as
3: you said, and he had a hard time finding work, I guess, but he went to a, a person named Floyd Jenkins. Can you talk about his relationship with him Because I think they he had a, a – a property upstate in, in California that helped Glenn, Glenn out.
0: Yeah, I was really excited to find Chloe and to interview him for the book. I just saw his name mentioned sort of offhand in an article about Glenn from the 70s in San Francisco. And I didn't know how to find him. Unfortunately, Chloe is not an extremely common name, you know, so I just started digging around and found him retired in Hawaii. Or not actually retired, still working in Hawaii and was able to interview him for the book. At the time, he ran uh, kind of a bed and breakfast on the Russian River, which was a up and coming resort area for gay people from San Francisco to get away from the city for a while. He would come into San Francisco to pass out pamphlets advertising his business. And Glenn saw him a couple of times at a bar called The Pendulum, where Glenn would hang out. And one time Glenn, essentially, forced Chloe to talk to him, (laughs) you know, he blocked him in the street and said, I want to meet you. And they ended up hitting it off. And and Glenn went out to the Russian river uh, and spent some time with Chloe. As you mentioned, this was a difficult period in Glenn's life where he, he was no longer a professional athlete for better and worse. You know, he was able to be himself in the Castro, but he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. He hadn't really given much thought to a career outside of sports, his sports career had been ripped away from him early. Chloe said that Glenn wasn't the type of guy that was going to be comfortable just like sitting behind a desk, like he's full of energy, right? And so he he was willing to share all of these feelings with Chloe. Chloe had been uh, a student at Brigham Young, which was also not an easy place to be a a gay person. Chloe's white, uh, Mormon, and he had written sort of a manifesto about what it was like to be gay in the Mormon church and changes that needed to be made. And so he had sort of a profile, you know, and he he could relate to Glenn's profile as a major league baseball player. And so they became, you know, really close. And one of Chloe's stories that he told me that I just loved was that as Glenn was hanging out at this resort on the Russian river, he would go into town of uh, Gurneyville, California, to a gay bar there called the Rainbow Cattle Club. And just down the road, there was a a straight bar called Pat's. And the clientele at these two bars never mixed. In fact, it was often hostile, you know, with uh, some of what Chloe called the rednecks in this town, uh, physically assaulting some of the uh, gay men at the other bar. But Glenn said he was going to go there. And Chloe said, don't go to Pat's. You're just asking for trouble. Uh, Glenn goes, and he's the most popular guy in the bar. You know, like everybody loved him well, you tell me the Dodger is here in our bar in this little town, you know? So uh, someone stepped on Glenn's foot on purpose and the other guys at the bar took him out and beat that up. You know? So they, uh, they loved Glenn. And they said, Hey, we heard you have a gay softball team in San Francisco. Why don't you bring them to town? And we, the rednecks of this town will play against your team from San Francisco. And Glenn did it. He brought his team up from San Fran. They played a game. And then uh, what Chloe said was so cool about the aftermath of that game is that both teams gathered in both bars on that street, you know, along the Russian River. And he said it changed the town. Glenn changed the attitudes in that town, which he said, normally, if you're gay, you've got to move out of a small town, you know, it's too small, you're not going to be comfortable there. But Glenn made it possible for people in that town to come out, you know, and to live there and to be happy there. And so just unbelievable impact that one person one charismatic person had on this little town
3: yes definitely uh, on, on a brighter note i would say talk about he was in that he invented the high five as we alluded to earlier let's talk a little about that how did that happen i mean that it's done every single day now but he, he's the first one i guess recorded one to do it well hold right.
2: on hold on andrew wait yes I, I always, Jeff always tells me he invented the high five. So this is news to me. So there we go. Glenn, that's my joke, all right? All right, all right.
0: <laughs> I think a lot of people probably claim to have invented the high five. The story goes that in the 1977 season, the Dodgers, you know, headed into the last month, already had three guys that had hit 30 home runs. Uh, Reggie Smith, Ron Say, and Steve Garvey. If they had one more player hit 30, They would become the first major league team with four guys with 30 home runs in the same season. Dusty Baker was stuck on 29 for weeks in September. And so, going into the final homestand of the season against the A's, I'm sorry, against the Astros, Dusty needed one more home run to set this record. The Dodgers had even posed a picture of those four guys in front of the scoreboard with the Big 30 on it in anticipation that Dusty would hit it. So he's feeling a lot of pressure. Tommy Lasorda is always in his ear. You know, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. The first three games of that series, Dusty doesn't hit a home run. So it goes into the final Sunday of the season. And on the mound for the Astros is J.R. Richard, who's not the easiest guy to hit a home run against. And he had owned the Dodgers, and you know, and, and Dusty in particular. Baker said that his first at bat, he could see some guys sitting above the Dodger dugout and hear them, and they were clearly betting on whether Baker was going to hit this home run or not, and he didn't do it his first at-bat. He didn't do it his second at-bat. You could see these guys exchanging like wads of cash that they were betting on him, and so his third at-bat of the game, Manny Moda, who never hits a home run, had homered off of uh, J.R. Richard in that inning. It was his only home run over a 10-year span of his career, and then Dusty hits it, He hits his 30th home run, and the crowd's going crazy. As he rounds second base, he said he looked over at the dugout. He could see those guys that had been betting. He was happy to shut them up. He was happy to shut up Tommy Lasorda, and Glenn Burke's on deck. And Glenn said he was just kind of lifted up by the enthusiasm of the crowd, five decks at Dodger Stadium, and he throws his arm up in the air to congratulate Dusty Baker, and Dusty slaps it. And there's the high five is born. The Dodgers coined that term high five they use it in their marketing for the next several years you know someone my age thinks of the bash brothers and the way the a's used to bash forearms (laughs) the dodgers really were doing that same kind of thing with the high five and so the second high five in history is hit just a couple minutes later glenn burke homers he was on deck when dusty homered he hits his first and only home run as a dodger in that at bat and when he comes back into the Dodgers dugout, there's the second high five in history. Dusty gives it back to him. And so that's the story of, of Glenn inventing the high five. I talked to Marvin Webb, who was one of his minor league teammates, a friend from the Bay Area. And he said that in the, even in the minor leagues, Glenn was always coming up with fun stuff to do. You know, uh, they called it a hand jive back then. It wasn't necessarily a high five, but they were always sort of making up gestures in the dugout and Dusty himself says, you know, some people want to say that Dusty invented it because he's the one that slapped Glenn's hand. Of course it takes two people to high five, but <laughs> Dusty Baker said that anything that's cool originates in the Bay Area, so you have to give Glenn the credit for inventing it.
3: Yes, yes, absolutely. A great story and a great picture in the book which which everybody should get. I mean, I seriously. Yeah,
0: right. there's a picture of them high-fiving and that yeah. picture has circulated People claiming it or assuming it's the first high five. But if you inspect the picture closely, it's not. It's the third high five. So I mentioned those first two. When the Dodgers played the Phillies in the playoffs, you know, a week later, Dusty Baker homered in a game at Dodger Stadium, game one of the series. Glenn wasn't playing. He wasn't on deck. And so the picture of Glenn high fiving uh, Dusty Baker in that picture, Glenn's wearing his cap backwards, which he would have been wearing a batting helmet if he was on deck right? And he's wearing a jacket. And it's not even his own jacket. It says Lopes on the back. So he was wearing Davy Lopes' jacket. But um, it's the first picture of those two high-fiving. It's just not the first high-five. Nice. (laughs) Andrew, this
3: is a fantastic book. We can go on and on, but we we need people to uh, go out and and buy the book. Could you tell us where they can get the book and any social media that you have that people want to reach out to you?
0: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. I always... Prefer, uh, you know, people have a good local bookstore in their area to support a local business. So you can, you can get it at any bookstore. If they don't have it, they can order it for you. You can find my website, AndrewMarinus.com. Marinus is M-A-R-A-N-I-S-S, and there's links to buy it there too. I'm on Twitter, and it's a it's a nod to my brewers fandom. My Twitter handle is TrueBlue24, but it's T-R-U-B-L-U-24, no E's. Ben Ogilvie was number 24 for the brewers in my day. My Instagram is just A Marinus, my first initial and last name. And then I'm on Facebook too. You can find me there. So if anybody wants a signed copy of the book, they can order it through Parnassus Bookstore in Nashville, my hometown indie bookstore. And they always let me know when someone orders a book and once it's signed and personalized and they'll ship it anywhere in the country. And, and one other place you can get the book, I know you're a
3: member of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club for 2021. Yeah, and you, there's a link there as
0: well. Yeah, people can check it out there. I was excited to get invited to join that club so uh, they can find it there and a number of other great baseball books from the last couple of years.
2: Yeah, it's a great club. It's unfortunate that it it needed to be a club, uh, right. the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, but they do great things. And we have had so many of their authors on, We'll do whatever we can to support their authors. And the books are incredible. And And I know I have just given you high praise. But again, for our listeners, obviously for our listeners, I said for our <laughs> listeners, if you're not if you're not listening, you're not a listener. <laughs> Get this book, please. You really it, it's almost a way to honor the memory of Glenn Burke. Uh, it really is. Read the, to read about him. You've you've done justice to him, and I we wish you so much luck with this book. and And we just hope that when when you're done with your publicity tour, however long it takes, we want you to look back at this interview, which I, I may be <laughs> one of your first. It is, and this should be one of your favorite.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, uh, you guys are great. I mean, I I love the name of your podcast. I love what you're doing with the podcast. You've been so kind with your comments about the book. It's fun to see all the post-its you've got in it. I mean, I can tell you really read it. Sometimes you do an interview and it's clear that no one's read the book, you know, so (laughs) thank you. And you guys do a real service to authors, especially as you mentioned during the pandemic where you can't get out to stores or book festivals, podcasts that interview authors about their books, you know, it's, it's really appreciated. So thank you.
3: Well, thank you. So
0: thanks for joining us and
3: good luck with the book.
0: All right. Thank
3: you so much. And we want to thank Andrew Marinus for taking time to talk to us on the book Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke. And reading this book, and you're right, when you're in the intro, it was a very emotional ride, this, this, uh, this book. He, what this guy went through, and he was a heck of a baseball player. I mean, I know he didn't last long in, in the major leagues, but he did start in the World Series. And to get not the chance that he should have been given is uh you know it was the way it was and it was just terrible
2: yeah i i mean jeff i don't want to i don't want to just speak uh, constantly oh it was sad it was sad and you know and deal whatever depressed and it's not as as we said in the interview he wasn't that that person he was always the you know the cut up in the clubhouse and he was the person you wanted to be around and he was the life of the party yeah but he, he can, he could never be himself. And, and just, you know, that's, that's all, I guess. I I think people, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to this book, you know, as far as a player, you know, Glenn Burke may have been a great athlete. He never, he never uh, had a great major league career, but so what? I I, I think it's, he's, he's so much more, the story is not his career as a player, you know, his stats, right? Because if you're doing it based on that, it's not a story. It, right. It's just who he was, what he had to go through. And, and I guess that's the. Uh, exactly. I hope everybody, uh, you know, enjoyed it. But I hope more importantly is that everybody will pick up that book. We'd love to get feedback from everyone, please. Jeff, just tell them once more how they could contact the show.
3: Okay. It's 516-855-8214. Our email is baseballandbbq at com. Facebook and Twitter, where baseball and bbq youtube same thing baseball and bbq instagram baseball and barbecue barbecue is all spelled out and our website is
2: www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com so jeff this is episode number 96 unfortunately we are at the end of it but we're going to end this episode with our friends the poet shel krakowski the musician dave dresser and the song ace and bobo everybody Enjoy yourselves, we hope to see you soon.